Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Stuart. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, Chris, but I've found this one the most daunting to cover in the fact that these songs are so well known. It, it's quite difficult to put on a fresh perspective of them. I feel exactly the same. I was going through the songs from Saturday Night Fever and I'm finding it difficult to say something different about them. These are four or five of the best regarded songs in popular music history. So for me to try and think of something else to say about them other than that they're just amazing songs. I found it far more easier with things like Trafalgar and Two Years On. So lesser known albums. Because yeah, I can find something else to say about them and they're not discussed at all to the extent of as these songs from 77, 78. When I spoke to you a little while ago, in fact, probably a few months back, and we mentioned these four or five songs, I was a bit concerned that we wouldn't have that much to discuss in the way of tracks. But it's only when you sort of delve in a bit deeper and then you realise how much stuff they did. There was a few songs they also gave away that weren't hits. When you look at the bulk of the material and you think that this was all written after Children of the World... The Bee Gees at the time didn't realise sort of what stratosphere these songs would take them. Would you say it's probably the pinnacle of the 70s with this one? Or would you probably put it as the, the next album? I think this is the peak. And I would say the Spirits Having Flown rides the same crest of the wave of this material. And then after that, we'll see where it goes. But I think that this is kind of the culmination of everything that they've been doing over the past three years, probably since Mr Natural has been leading up to this. And I think it all goes towards the grand success of the 79 tour and how much of a smash hit the Spirits album was. And this is just a demonstration of, I think you've said it before, it's in this period where anything that Barry Gibb touches just turns to gold. I mean, you see on the internet where people try and collate what would have been their 1977 or early 78 LP, you know, had Saturday Night Fever not existed. It's phenomenal, isn't it? The tracks that, obviously, you've got the, these five, you've got songs they wrote. There's a couple of songs they did for Andy. A few tracks, sort of 77, 78, that were even left over for the beginning of the 80s. And going on with what I said about everything Barry touches turning into gold, that does reflect itself in the music in that 90% more so of these songs is Barry and in falsetto voice. Absolutely, yeah, that's what that's what I feel. And, and then that reaches it, its pinnacle with Spirits Haven't Flown. As we've said before, I think Robin was quite was so was so hit driven that providing the Bee Gees were having hits at this stage of his career, I personally think he just wanted the hits and he was more than happy with the direction they were going. But saying that, when we get to the Sgt. Pepper soundtrack, we do see some variation in lead vocals, which is nice to hear. Yeah, and a lot less falsetto as well. So regarding Saturday Night Fever, it was one of the top-selling albums of all time. Have you physically listened to all four sides or after side one, do you tend to think, "Mm, right, that's it? Yeah, I attempted to listen to it last week all the way through because I felt like it would kind of be sacrilege to record this two-hour episode on a soundtrack that I've not listened to all the way through. And so I played it and I started from after the Bee Gees songs. And... There's some really nice instrumentals by David Shire. I particularly like Manhattan Skyline and a couple of other of his sort of disco instrumental background music. (laughs) 
then you've also got um, a couple more Bee Gees, but they are You Should Be Dancing, which really now has become an integral part of that. People associate that with these set of songs rather than from the previous album. And then towards the end of the soundtrack, there was some remixes of yeah. Staying Alive and More Than A Woman. I think I skipped over a few of the just disco numbers that were on there. I didn't actually buy the album. I was I borrowed it. I taped it, as you could then, and I'll be honest, I never really listened to it that much. Mm. Apart from the first five songs or, or whatever. I put all the BG stuff on one side of a, of a cassette and then switched over for the other side. But the other side I never really played, to be honest with you. Was your first exposure to these songs when they were coming out at the time? Yes. I actually brought How Deep Is Your Love as a single. So it was the first BG single I'd brought since Run To Me. Well, I think really it was probably the first BG single in the UK that got that much exposure. Okay, you had Jive Talking and You Should Be Dancing. But I think this that song just hit... On a different level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going on from your memories of the time in 77, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack was released in November of that year. So I've got the top 10 UK singles from that month. Going in from number 10, Baron Knights. Well, they was a sort of a comedy act. So they used to skit other people's songs, but I can't remember the name of the song. Live in Trouble? No. Live in Trouble. Number nine, The Bee Gees. How Deep Is Your Love? Yep. Number eight, Shawaddy Waddy. Don't know. Dancing Party. No, I would have known that. Rod Stewart at number seven. I Don't Want to Talk About It. Nope. Hot Legs? Nope. Don't know. You're In My Heart. Oh. At number six, Tom Robinson. 2468 Motorway. Yep. Number five, Wings. Well, that's got to be Mullican Time. Yep. At number four, Bacara. Yes, Sir, I Can Boogie. Yep. Number three, Status Quo. Rocking All Over the World. Yep. Number two, Queen. Was it We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions? Correct. And any guesses for number one? Number one from... November 77. Was it David Soul? Nope. Abba? Yep. Name of the game? Correct. Yeah. Well done. Good top ten? Yes, because I actually bought a few of the singles. I had Wings, Muller, Kintyre I bought. Abba. Surprise, isn't it? <laughs> Rocking All Over the World I, I brought as well. Yeah, that's about it. So let's go back to the origins of this album. After the Bee Gees had finished touring and recording overdubs for the Here At Last live album, it was around February of 77 that they put down some demos of four songs. If I Can't Have You, Night Fever, Warm Ride and More Than A Woman. And then in April, the Bee Gees flew to Paris, where they stayed at the Chateau de Hereville, which was also the location of Elton John's 1972 album Honky Chateau. In the ultimate biography, Morris recalls, when Elton did his album, the studio had just been built, and it was fabulous. By the time that we went there, we felt like we were waiting for the Americans to come and liberate us. The place had gone downhill, and the studio itself had no atmosphere. Morris goes on to say, Robert Stigwood had asked for three songs, and we gave him three songs off of what would have been our next studio album. We played him demo tracks of If I Can't Have You, Night Fever and More Than A Woman. We'd also written a song called Saturday Night, but there were so many songs called Saturday Night, so we rewrote it for the movie and called it Staying Alive. And in talking in 1989 about the origins of the songs, Barry says, All of those songs were for our own album. They weren't for Fever at all. Robert Stigwood 
just happened to hear those four or five songs and said he wanted them for the movie. How Deep Is Your Love, Staying Alive, More Than A Woman, If I Can't Have You, these things were all done in a chateau in France, in really bad weather, with nothing else to do. We heard he was doing a film, and uh, we were in France uh, recording the new album, which was, uh, we had the five to six songs ready, and we were doing them there. And he came over and uh, told us about this film, about a, a guy who works in a paint shop and blows his wages every Saturday night in a club across the bridge and, from Brooklyn, and, uh, and wins a dance contest. Disco was never mentioned. Uh, and he'd heard the songs, and he said, I'd love to use these songs in the film. So what happened with us, they're only rough form then, they're sort of demo mm-hmm. form. And uh, he loved them all. And uh, funny enough, the, the particular track, Staying Alive, was so apt for the film, even though we'd never seen it or knew the story, the lyrics alone were just so perfect for it that uh, it was quite, quite ironic. Before we start going through the songs that are on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, we'll take a look at the film itself and the impact of its release. The film was based on a 1976 New York magazine article called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. And this was a working title for the film after Robert Stigwood acquired the rights to it. And the article goes on to depict how raw and how graphic life was, the night scene was in New York at the time. The film was released in December 1977. It was directed by John Badham and produced by Robert Stigwood. Saturday Night Fever is the third highest grossing film of 1977 in the US, with Close Encounters of the Third Kind at number two and Star Wars at number one. And worldwide, it is the fourth highest grossing film of 1977, with Close Encounters of the Third Kind at number three, Smokey and the Bandits at number two and Star Wars still at number one. John Travolta was nominated Best Actor at the Academy Awards. The Bee Gees were nominated for Best Original Music at the British Academy Film Awards and nominated for Best Original Score at the Golden Globes. How Deep Is Your Love won Best Pop Vocal Performance by a group at the 1978 Grammy Awards. In the 1979 Grammy Awards, the soundtrack won the Best Album of the Year. Stayin' Alive won Record of the Year, Song of the Year and also the Best Arrangement for Voices. And Barry... Robin, Morris, Albie Galutin and Carl Richardson won Best Producer of the Year. Well, I'm not surprised that um, they got all them awards because during 78, I think the Bee Gees were responsible in the... It, I'm just going for the on the US, were responsible for 14 hits. So you've got How Deep Is Your Love was number one, Love Is Thicker Than Water, number one, Staying Alive, number one, Emotion, number three, Night Fever, number one, if I Can't Have You, number one. More Than A Woman, 39. Shadow Dancing, number one. Grease, number one. Everlasting Love, number five. Our Love Don't Throw It All Away, number nine. Warm Ride, 39. Ain't Nothing Gonna Keep Me From You, number 43. And then at the end of 78, you've got Too Much Heaven, number one again. Wow. That's some record, isn't it? In a 21st of January 1978 issue of Record World, Al Corey discusses the succession of chart-topping singles from the soundtrack, saying, It's coming out exactly as we planned it, in that the incredible popularity of the film is now repaying the exposure the album bought. But the sales are exceeding our expectations by far. At this point, our average daily sales are restrained only by our production capacity. Roger Ebert, in March 1999, 
reviewed the film and rated it four stars out of four, saying, We all have a powerful memory of the person we were at the moment when we formed a vision for our lives. Tony Manero, John Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever, stands poised precisely at that moment. He makes mistakes, he fumbles, he says the wrong things, but when he does what he loves, he feels a special grace. How he feels and what he does transcend the weaknesses of the movie he is in. We are right to remember his strut and the beauty of his dancing. Devote your life to something you love, not like, but love. Gene Siskel liked to say that. Saturday Night Fever is about how Tony Manero does that. And then Rob Fraser reviewed the film for Empire in January 2000, rating it four stars out of five, saying, Travolta is mesmerising in every scene, carrying the film despite some woeful performances from the supporting cast. Naturally, his dancing is etched on the culture's collective consciousness, but it was the dramatic work which earned him an Oscar nomination. Perversely, it's the musical sequences that have failed to stand the test of time. Even if you ignore two decades worth of parodies and pastiches, the heavily choreographed shapes John Travolta and the rest throw verge on the ridiculous. To borrow from a later Bee Gees hit, the fact that Saturday Night Fever is remembered only for the disco action is a real tragedy. Have you ever seen the film? A long while ago, very long while ago. I think it was on TV 80s, during the 80s or something. It's hardly ever shown on TV. That's what I'm thinking. It's a difficult film to find. And I watched it for the first time last year and it was on, I think it was on film four and they only ever really show it. It will be like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night and watching it, it's understandable why. I watched the R-rated version because it is quite a graphic film. There's themes of sexual assault, suicide, depression. I don't think that a majority of the people who think about the film really understand quite what it's about. I think they see the, the dance clips yeah, that are shown. You've got the the famous dance scene with the with the checkboard lighting dance floor and things. And as Rob Fraser went on to say in his review for Empire, it has become so pastiched. It's gone on to become such a overly reproduced, choreographed scene. It's often the soundtrack and that scene that is remembered, and not the whole film itself. Yeah. And particularly the the starting bit with John Travolta walking along. That image of John Travolta's Tony Monero walking down the street, I know is always a company to staying alive. But as we like to go through things chronologically, should we go back to the first single that was released, which was How Deep Is Your Love? Know your eyes in the morning sun. I feel you touch me in the pouring rain. And the moment that you wonder Well, I've got to say, Chris, this this has a melody to die for, doesn't it? It's it's gorgeous. It, it's like when I went on about Charade and how the songs lead it up. This is the pinnacle. It's probably my all-time favourite Bee Gees song. Then I could change it. But as we're sitting here at the moment, it's in that top two or three. I don't think the Bee Gees have written or topped this since then. Probably come to a podcast two or three down the line and I might shift and change. But 
here and now, it's superb. Despite the name of our podcast, Words, in which we discuss all of the songs and our format of going through the Beaches material and, and talking about them subjectively, sometimes it's just too difficult to put into words how a song makes you feel. And this is a prime example. It's pure perfection in every way. It's a masterpiece. And for me, it's quite nice that the falsetto sort of kept in tow. We're getting Barry's natural voice blended with, with the harmonies. As I said before, it was the first thing that I brought since, since Run To Me. And unlike, say, like Jive Talking, I never get fed up of hearing this. It sort of stops you in your track if it comes on the radio, which, to be fair, it doesn't that often. But if it does, it's an instant sing-along and embarrass yourself while driving in the car. <laughs> but this one, I believe that Barry worked with Blue on this one. I mean, the only reason I'm saying that is because there is a there is a working tape, very, very poor quality. But you can actually hear Barry and Blue working together in particular. The way the melody flows, there are a couple of bits that they do, but then take out. Obviously, seeing the way it flows. I mean, I'm no songwriter, but I would imagine between them, this sort of song wrote itself. I like the, just the way the piano and the harmonies all sort of blend. It's amazing how these these things get onto YouTube. I looked into it and I read the reason why it was um, used in the court case, in the defence. There was a lawsuit by somebody called Ronald Sell. He wrote a song in 75 and he thought part of the melody was from that. So I assume that was then handed over to court so they could listen to it. Evidence. As evidence, exactly, Yeah. yeah. Blue Weaver goes on to say that we started work around about lunchtime uh, on this demo and at about three, four o'clock in the morning, it was done. Initially, it was just him and Barry and Barry asked him to play some really nice chords and he would try and work with him on that. And then between the two of them, they were starting to structure the song, which you can hear, as I say, on that working tape. And it's also nice at the time to get a ballad, Beaches Back to Being Balladeers. Every album that they did, pretty much going from Beaches First right through into Mr. Natural, the albums opened with the ballad. And then we discussed in the Mr. Natural episode about how they sort of needed to go away from that. And then Main Course opens with Nights on Broadway, which isn't a ballad, and Children of the World with You Should Be Dancing. And I think that had they have released that album in 77 that wasn't Saturday Night Fever, they could have gone back to the Mr. Natural approach and opened the album with How Deep Is Your Love. So I think it was quite a brave move for them to start with this one. Whatever you call it, How Deep Is Your Love to me is, is one of the finest songs we've ever been involved in. 
What was the B-side to it? Well, the track actually I hadn't heard when I brought the single, and that's Can't Keep a Good Man Down, which is the live version from Here at Last. Looking at the chart history on this one, this spent 17 weeks in the top 10 in the US, and it sold over a million copies in the UK. It was number one in France for a few weeks. In the UK, it was the number three single, 77. In the ultimate biography, Robin says, Every now and then, a song comes along that has universal appeal. Not every song has it, but I think, How Deep Is Your Love does. It's either in the music or the lyrics. But there is something about what someone says in a lyric that gives it universal appeal every time you hear it. Personalities are examined in that tune, but female or male aren't even mentioned in it. It has universal connotations and it clicks with everyone. It's like a song you hear and never get tired of. Yeah. Which I completely agree. Yeah, exactly. There's no story in this song. There's no he, she said, none of that. It's just the emotion of love demonstrated across the record. I mean, this song would go on as well because after its release, 19 years later, Take That took it to number one. And then in, in 2018, Take That released the Greatest Hits album and they asked Barry to do co-vocals on it. And then again, we get another outing for it on Barry's latest album, Greenfields. How deep is your love? After going through a lush ballad, shall we switch the tempo up a little bit and go into Staying Alive? liner notes for the Tales from the Brothers Gib box set, Barry says, Great steaming medallions and disco boots. What do we have here? The most dangerous record of the 70s. Place record on turntable, light fuse, and stand well back. <laughs> At the time of recording this episode, Staying Alive is the highest streamed Bee Gees song on Spotify, with over 800 million. And it's completely understandable why. This is pop perfection encapsulated. We've got an infectious groove capturing the entire disco movement of the mid to late 1970s, as well as Monero's personality in the Saturday Night Fever film. It's just impossible not to groove and boogie to this one. And 
I think you can see that entirely. When Barry played this song at Glastonbury in 2017, you can see the whole crowd, including the whole security team, are all dancing to it. Oh, that's a fabulous. If anybody's not seen that, it's absolutely brilliant, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, fantastic. And it's obviously something that the security guards have been practising this. heard it that many times but honestly I still can't sing properly along to the lyrics you often go on certain tracks where you've heard lyrics or you've misheard the lyrics yeah okay let's do a bit of a test I'm going to ask you to read through what you think the first verse well you can tell by the way I use my walk I'm a woman's man no time to talk isn't it yeah music loves music loud I thought music music loud loves Music loud and women warm. I've been kicked around since I was born. born. Yeah. And now it's all right. It's okay. You may look the other way. We can try Do to understand. understand. The New York affects a man or something. The New York Times' Times. effect on man. man. Whether you're a mother or whether you're a brother. Other way around. Whether you're a brother, whether you're a mother. Staying alive. <laughs> Staying alive. Feel the city heating. No. Feel the city breathing. Close. Breathing. <laughs> Feel the city breaking. And everybody shaking. And we're staying, staying alive. alive. Staying alive. Right, staying. This next bit's huh? easy. Huh? Staying alive. Staying alive. I can't do the other bit. They're pulling the trousers up. And then, well, let's get to the falsetto. Well, now, I get low and I get high. And if I can't get either, I really try. Got the wings of heaven on my shoes. I'm a dancing man and I just can't lose. You know, it's all right. It's okay. I'll live to see another day. We can try to understand the New York Times' effect on man. So I think that this is the closest song to the film in that this feels like a biography or a description of Tony Monero's character. And, and I assume the staying alive is staying alive because obviously the he's doing what he's best to stay alive. Isn't exactly. It? In, the, it, in the difficult culture of New York at the time. And then with the mention of the New York Times it made me think of the original article, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, from the New York magazine. Whether this song was adapted after Robert Stigwood told the Bee Gees that he would like them to do this for the film and gave them a description of what the film was about, that Barry, Robin and Morris then adapted the lyrics, etc., yeah. to match the film. And if we're talking about how great this song is, have you listened to the promo 12-inch version? Yes. It's got great brass punches in it. Don't think you get that, do you, on the... The regular album the, version? No. no. No, I really, really rate that 12-inch promo version. Looking on Joseph Brennan notes on this one, he goes on to say that Morris laid down an excellent bass line modelled on Clean Up Woman by Miami singer Betty Wright.
this one as well has got an interesting history because it started with a tape loop. Carl Richardson copied a choice few seconds of drumming from Night Fever, cut out the piece of tape, glued the ends together, hence your loop, and fed it back into a recorder to create a new drum track. The same loop track was used on More Than A Woman and two years later in some variations for Barbara Streisand's Guilty album, Life Story and What Kind Of Fool. Totally different type of songs, aren't they? Yeah, very interesting though. Would you say that Staying Alive is the definitive example of Barry Gibbs' falsetto? Without a doubt, yeah. Yeah, I I think so. When anyone thinks of the Bee Gees and the disco era and Barry Gibbs' falsetto, I tend to think that this is the one that comes to mind first. In the UK, Night Fever got higher in the charts than this one. But I do think now with with this song has overtaken that, I think, and it, it is the, what would you say, if you if you think of the Bee Gees, late 70s, Saturday Night Fever, this is the first song. You don't think of How Deep Is Your Love. It, it's always, it's just gone into a life of its own. Yeah, yeah, as Barry said, put it on the turntable, like the fuse and stand well back. go back to an earlier version of this song and one which I particularly like and I know that you do as well and that's the version of Staying Alive that includes the the dream sequence the bridge that was later cut yeah Blue Weaver recalls this slower section in the demo saying Robert Stigwood came in and said they're on the dance floor at this time in the film and suddenly he sees her across the floor and it goes in slow motion and they walk towards each other so we wrote this slow section but we threw it out in the end There are obviously reasons why it never went on there in the first place. I first heard this slow version about a month ago, before recording this episode. And at first time I heard it... It's weird, isn't it? Because your brain is not ready for it. You're right. And then I heard it and I thought, yeah, this doesn't work. I can understand why it was cut. But then re-listening to it, then my second thought was, I really like this slow version, but if you take it in isolation, and it could have been a really great ballad on Living Ice. But I think so. But now... I think I actually prefer this whole version with the slow section. They could have kept this version for the album and for the film and for the single have removed it. Yeah, I I think it's good. I mean, like you said, I think Staying Alive, they redid as as quite a long song. And then I think for the film, it was edited. And then for a single, it's edited again. So every time it went out, it was shrinking. So I don't think it works so well as Nights on Broadway. In 1975, when 10CC, or then 74, 75, when they were working, I'm not in love. There's a part where Eric sings lyrics over a backing, and then they felt it didn't work quite right, so they then took off the vocals but left the backing. And sometimes by removing things, it makes it sound better.
I, I just really like the melody of the, the slow section on Staying Alive. I think that it could have just been developed into its own really lovely ballad. Barry had a habit of doing that. If we look ahead to Our Love Don't Throw It All Away, he adds a bridge in there. But as you say, even these little bridges, they're, they're like little micro songs on their own, aren't they? I, I assume that sometimes they might have snippets of songs that they, they think can weave together. And as I say, sometimes it doesn't quite work, and other times it does. The B-side to Staying Alive is the Bee Gees version of If I Can't Have You. How did Staying Alive perform in the charts? Not surprisingly, it was the fifth number one in the US the Bee Gees had had. And then the UK, it got to number four. So that's a change to have a, have a follow-up single, hit the charts. They were buzzing again in Germany because they got to number two. Brilliant. Should we move on to what I regard as the twin sister to Staying Alive? And that's Night Fever. Staying Alive is all about life outside of the club, in the streets of New York City and the difficulties that a young man can face in this macho world. Then Night Fever is all about life inside of the clubs. Just by looking at the lyrics, Night Fever, Night Fever, we know how to do it. Give me that Night Fever, Night Fever, we know how to show it. And this reflects Tony Monero's societal status as a great dancer. And this is a song that's all about expression, confidence, culture. Staying Alive has told us that Monero leads a life of hardship, but Night Fever shows the other side to that. And it shows us the vibrant culture, nightlife of the clubs where there is movement all around. When this came out, and I would say up to fairly recently, I preferred this one to Staying Alive. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, that was a bigger hit in the UK. To give you some sort of idea, in the UK it sold 800,000 as opposed to Staying Alive with 390. So it virtually doubled. With this one, that was because the film was getting bigger and bigger. I think more people probably after Staying Alive went to see the film and then when Night Fever came out, went and brought it. Cashbox reviewed Night Fever in the 4th of February 1978 issue, saying, The Bee Gees are one of the hottest pop disco groups around, and this cut, taken from the landmark Saturday Night Fever effort, features a dancing beat, scratchy guitar, and sweeping orchestration. And then for Stereo Gum, Tom Brayen talks about Night Fever. This song, like a lot of Bee Gees tracks from the same period, is a minor studio miracle. It's lush and complicated and symphonic. Guitars do funky chicken scratches, fuzz pedal booms, and loungy bossa nova rhythmic things. Keyboards flutter and glow. Barry Gibb sing screams the whole thing in a near impossible falsetto. The drums keep up a simple, monstrous 4-4 stomp all throughout, which goes back to the loop. Yeah. Anchoring the song and keeping the various embellishments from floating off into ear candy nothingness. Between those drums and Gibb's voice, Night Fever remains hard and urgent. 
it demands to be heard. I mean, I don't know about you, but every time you listen to this, you can't be failed to move, you know, to move your body. I mean, it's like comparing eating a donut and not licking your lips, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. You've just got to tap your foot or something, because you said a while, was it the last episode, or you was at work and people were moving their feet? Yeah, to jive talking. To jive talking. Well, this is another one, isn't it, where you can't, as soon as it comes on, you, even if you're sitting at your desk at work, your shoulders are uh, <laughs> sort of moving like... Like you've got a fly down your back or something, but it's, well, it's me anyway. <laughs> and interestingly, this song was covered by a singer I've never heard of called Carol Douglas, or she sounded very much like Diana Ross to me. It's not on the soundtrack, but it can be heard in the movie. The article from the New York magazine that inspired Saturday Night Fever, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, which was ultimately changed to Saturday Night Fever, and it was this song, Night Fever. When the Bee Gees wrote it, they then proposed to Stigwood that the name of the film be changed. However, Saturday Night Fever, I think Stigwood had some reservations in that the name sounded too pornographic. Yes, I think um, I think it was the right move. Interestingly, there was a demo of this that came out in 2007. Because they re-released the 1979 Greatest Hits and they added Warm Ride as well. And I always remember at the time I was really excited because I thought 2006 they'd released this box set of the first three albums. So I I was waiting for Odessa to be the next one and they slotted this one in quite quickly and added, added Warm Ride, which was an unreleased track at the time. Then obviously there was this demo. You know, we had high hopes to sort of link and then Odessa would have come out in 2008 etc but obviously that wasn't to be but it's very similar to the release version I mean I don't know if you've heard it in full but it's more synth laden I don't think there's any real strings some ad-libbing and background vocals become a bit more noticeable whether you can hear Robin or you think you can hear Robin I'm not sure I mean I'd like people to listen to it and see whether there is Robin you can audibly hear him but yeah. I've, I've listened a couple of times and I'm I'm struggling. To the general or the casual listener, I don't think they would notice any difference between this, the demo and the original. Chart-wise on this one, again, it was a, a US number one. And surprise, surprise, it got to number one in the UK, which is their first number one since 10 years previous in 68 with I've Got to Get a Message to You. In Germany, it repeated the success of Stone Alive and got to number two. Very good. The big wheel was turning, wasn't it? And momentum for this was, was gathering pace. So on that little note, then, shall we go on to the next track? four tracks the Bee Gees worked on as demos back in February 77. So you had If I Can't Have You, Night Fever, Warm Ride 
and more than a woman noticeably in the nearly all dance tracks now this one interestingly is sung by the Bee Gees and also by Tavares now I think Tavares got to number 32 in the US and number 7 in the UK So I assume it was probably somebody at RSO who must have heard the demo then decided that it would enhance the soundtrack by putting the Bee Gees version on there. Because of the success of How Deep Is Your Love, they decided they wanted more Bee Gees on the album. And obviously it worked, didn't it? This one is kind of a midpoint song because it's part danceable, part disco, but also part ballad. Yeah. And I think this is... My opinion changes every day of the five songs. Right at this moment, it is my favourite. I absolutely love this one. This is one of those songs, the Bee Gees version in particular is what I'm referring to. It's one that will never age. The production is just so clean. It's contemporary to any era. I think it could have been recorded yesterday. It it could have been recorded tomorrow. It, It just sounds so fresh as it would have done in 1977 with the synth strings and the orchestra. It all just sounds so pure and wonderful and it's I think it's just the sound of magic now more than a woman I think was made even more popular quite recently in 2021 there was an edit by a DJ called SG Lewis I've not heard that and it's called the paradise edit and it's a fascinating listen because it deconstructs the song to its component parts emphasizing the really incredible instrumentation at three minutes 40 all of the instruments drop and it just leaves Barry's falsetto And it really demonstrates the power of his falsetto at that moment. It's funny you saying that, you're going on about that. Doing my notes... I've got this down as my least favourite. And yet I love it. Don't get me wrong, but I, could, I think because the qualities are so high, I would still put it in the top pile of songs on any, on any you know, Bee Gees album. But for these five, it's my least favourite of the five. And I think it's got some beautiful natural harmonies as well. For me, it goes back to the indescribable thing, as I said, with How Deep Is Your Love, where it's, it's too good to describe. And they never really did this one live, apart from, I think they use it with Night Fever, on one night only. And then in 2008, we get a solo version from Robin. And this was the Electric Proms in, I think it's the Roundhouse in London. They staged the 30th anniversary of Saturday Night Fever reaching number one. From memory, I think it was a concert where you got various artists doing different songs. And Robin did a version of uh, More Than A Woman. But I thought what we'll do, we'll just play a clip of it and then we'll save our thoughts till nearer the time. When you saw them live for the High Civilization tour, how many songs from... The Saturday Night Fever soundtrack or this era well, that they, I, I, without that they do. looking back I always remember starting the concert with Tragedy and I don't remember probably you see even the Bee Gees have had such a love and hate 
relationship with this album, haven't they? You you took back that that quote you quoted from nineteen ninety, and obviously I went to see them in ninety one ninety two. So their opinions of you know of how they perceive this album is to how much of the songs they played on it, and I think you'll probably find more songs played from one night only. And I assume if if they were together now in hindsight, they they would be playing possibly all five. And then seeing the reaction to the crowd at Glastonbury, how um, the momentum swung in favour of these these songs compared to all that dirge and, and horrendous stuff that ends in 1980 with all this disco burning, and which I think stayed with them for a, a long while. I think More Than A Woman has some of the all-time great Bee Gees lyrics. My favourite being the verse that comes after the first chorus. There are stories old and true of people so in love like you and me, and I can see myself. Let history repeat itself. Reflecting how I feel for you, thinking about these people then, I know that in a thousand years I'd fall in love with you again. Barry's vocal style with the orchestration and the sweeping synths and everything just comes together and it's just such a magical moment. We've mentioned before, sometimes their lyrics are a little bit abstract, but I think they seem more focused. So we come to the final track the famous five, shall we speak, and it's If I Can't Have You. Like you said for the previous song, More Than A Woman, being one of your favourites, for me, this has been one of my favourites. Even with Yvonne Elliman's version, which I heard first, I always loved it. And it comes such a surprise to me. I, I'm going back to 78 and I was allowed to go out to the pub and have a drink. I used to have a jukebox in the pub I used to go to. And it had the Bee Gees on there and it had If I Can't Have You and I, I remember thinking that's not right it's Yvonne Element so I, I put the music on the jukebox and then all of a sudden it's Bee Gees singing it and I it threw me I'd, I'd never heard their version before saying I had no idea that, that there was a version by the Bee Gees and since hearing that so that has been always been now my go-to version it is tremendous e- even though I love Yvonne's version of it and I do think it's a step up from her cover of Love Me. I was quite surprised that on Yvonne Elliman's version, this is the, one of the only songs that Barry gave away where it, they have no involvement with it at all. So they don't produce it. He doesn't sing backing vocals on it. It's if they gave it to Yvonne Edmund and said, right, off you go. 
give her the track, you go off and produce, unless they were too busy at the time. Because whereas others, you know, even the more obscure songs that, w- that we'll come to, Barry's always on backing vocals. It does gain a bit of a softer approach than the Bee Gees one. And I think that Yvonne Elliman's If I Can't Have You does sound like a product of 77, whereas the Bee Gees version, I think, has still stood the test of time today. I don't think it's really dated that much, whereas I would say that hers definitely belongs as a part of this soundtrack. Because wasn't the Bee Gees more of a demo? It's a demo, but it still sounds as finished, I think, as more than a woman staying alive. It feels as much complete as the rest of them. And also with this song, I don't know why, I've always seen this as a follow-on to I Just Want to Be Your Everything. It was written around about the same time. It feels like it's a follow-on to it. If you'd have asked me two years ago what my favourite song of these five was, it would be If I Can't Have You. And then I think this time last year it would have been How Deep Is Your Love, but now it's More Than A Woman. But If I Can't Have You... It's pop perfection. It is pop perfection. And it surprised me looking through the Tales from the Brothers Gibb liner notes. Morris writes about If I Can't Have You, and he says, Would you believe that this one was originally written for ABBA on the steps of the Chateau in France? And I can imagine ABBA doing it. Oh, yeah. The two girl harmonies. But they, they on, it, on all their albums, they were solely the only composers. They wouldn't take... But it would, would have been nice of them to do it and put it on a, as a B-side or something. I am behind you. heard some people describe if i can't have you as almost a rock song i've heard it with tragedy and i agree with that tragedy is is kind of like a proto-rock song made disco if i can't have you is i don't know what to describe it as just great disco pop it was done by in 93 by kim wilde and she got to number 12 in the charts with it as well so all these things sort of hint at a reinsurgence with these five songs And it's interesting as well, now we've come to the fifth song, that all five of these are all BRM compositions, which is great. I know we go on about the lack of hearing Robin and Morris, but I'm hoping that those songwriting credits are true and that all three were involved. Well, I think that comes to the end of the, of the five famous songs. So as we're still in 77, I thought what we'll do then, we'll carry on with songs that they gave away. Yep. And one of the first songs that they did on their first sessions was Warm Ride. Now, because this song was then covered by Andy on After Dark, and then we'll save, we'll save our thoughts then for After Dark. Okay, well, I'll hold me notes back then. <laughs>
and next we get to a Barry and Robin composition that I've been really itching to talk about and it's emotion. Emotion was recorded by Samantha Sang in April 1977 at Criteria Studios in Miami, and she then released it as the A-side to her single in December 1977. Sang recalled how she became involved with this song. She said, I had a clever manager who found out that the Bee Gees were in France recording. We contacted Barry and told him that we were in France, and he told us to come over. So we met up and spoke, and he said he would write a song for me. I love the big emotional ballads, but Barry said, I'm going to write one to show off your soft voice. After about a month, he called me and asked me to come to Florida to record with him. And then the song which Barry had actually written for Samantha was Our Love Don't Throw It All Away. Interesting. But when she arrived in Miami, Barry said to her, I think I've topped myself, played her his demo of emotion, and she chose that instead. Now, we've come across Samantha Sang before, way back in the Cucumber Castle episode when she recorded Barry's composition. And she did a superb vocal, if I remember correctly, superb vocal on that one, on the A and the B side. Yeah. And again, that's so frustratingly that she recorded a couple of more songs that are still unreleased. Interestingly, she did release an album and redid that song again. And also, which, excuse me, but she also recorded Charade. So cue a clip. Light of my life, you are welcome to my charade. Brilliant. That's got it out my system. Well, what was you saying? <laughs> Have you recovered yet from that coming last in the poll? No, that's why I thought we'd play a clip of this now, you <laughs> see. I'm looking forward to anybody else going to cover it as well that I can cover in later episodes. You never see I really like Samantha Sang's version. I think she does an amazing job on it. I think she was the right person to choose to sing this song. But my one problem with it is that she seems to get overtaken by Barry in the chorus. It's like they didn't have enough faith in Samantha Sang's voice. Well, I've read some reviewers have said, are you sure it's not Barry's with his voice slowed down? Because Barry sort of takes over the chorus. And it's a shame because I think to have Barry in the background as he does with Barbara on Guilty and with the other artists that he works with in the 1980s, great, he's in the background, he's just harmonising, strengthening the vocals. And he does that with emotion, but it's just at the chorus, he takes over, and I'm not really listening to the song at that point for Barry, I'm listening to it for Samantha's vocals. Yeah. So I'd rather just have it be purely Samantha. But she does sing it in his his style, though. Breathy. Yes. Which she did with The Love of a Woman. Yeah. But more so on this one. Well, to kiss goodnight. 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 
But then going on to the version that was recorded in 1994 for the unreleased Love compilation, I adore that version. I put it in my top 10 of all Bee Gees songs. I just think it's wonderful. But a lot of people don't like it. Really? Mm. That version or the no, song? No, these 94 covers. I think they all, didn't they also do um, Heartbreaker as well during that recording session? Yes, that's fantastic. But I think that when you listen to the 94 version of Emotion, I think that it sounds like a midway point going from How to Fall in Love, from Sizes and Everything, but then it sounds like a precursor to Still Waters. I think that 94 re-recording could have been on Still Waters. It sort of links the two together. Yeah, and it wouldn't be out of place, but I think it's tremendous. And it's the moment on the second verse when Robin comes in. Gives me goosebumps every time. I love it. Because going back to the original, it was recorded in April 77. So again, we are talking pre-Saturday Night Fever. So she didn't go on the the success of that. It was, if it was recorded in April 78, I can understand it. But this was April 77. So she didn't know what success the Bee Gees were going to have. And considering a previous time of working with them, as you mentioned, during Cucumber Castle, was a complete failure. And I think, if I remember rightly, wasn't it she had a visa run out, she had to go back to Australia. And it's just a pity we never really got to hear more of her after this. the re-recording in 1994 I've thought about this and I think it was quite a musical trend in the mid 90s for artists from the 70s to re-record their hits because in 1995 10cc re-record I'm not in love in 96 Daryl Hall does a new version of She's Gone yeah and so then for the Bee Gees to do these new versions of 70s and 80s hits I think it fits into that musical landscape whether it was a time of compilations or, or whether it's to do with original rights of the song but then I think, wasn't it also covered by Destiny's Child as well? Yes, 2000. The song itself, I think, continues in the vein of Charade. How deep is your love? With the seductive, gentle verses and breathy vocals... But as I said, in, it's the 1994 version. It's Robin's vocals which really make the song what it is. And the production style of that, it just suits that R&B flavour so well. Because to be honest, I think had the Bee Gees released it themselves or put it out in this fictitious 1977 album, I bet you wouldn't have had Robin on there. No. I think when we talked about Tim, one of his favourites was For Whom the Bell Tolls, yeah. where he described Robin's vocals as lifting that song into a higher stratosphere than than a lot of songs. And it's exactly the same with Emotion. It has the exact same impact. Yeah. And also in the 90s, R&B became very popular, a bit of a resurgence, but also it started to develop into its own new form of genre, neo-soul, etc. And so I think Emotion, again, fits into that really well. So it suits the 90s landscape, Destiny's Child, as we mentioned. I could go through the Bee Gees catalogue and pick certain songs and think, hmm, that could be redone, that can be redone. 
And there's a lot of songs that we've discussed throughout the podcast since since starting, thinking, hmm, that sounds like a hit single for somebody. And I think you're just getting the fruition of all this in 77. So with that then, shall we go on to the next one? Shall we go with Save Me, Save Me? Let's do it. How do you feel about this little unknown song? Very unknown. I didn't know about it until doing the prep for this episode when you sent over the list. And I saw this as a composition and I'd not heard it before. It's by Barry and Albie Galuton. First song they've composed together. Yeah, and sadly it wasn't a hit. I think it's it's a really, really great little song. It was recorded by Network and released in June 1977. It was recorded at Criteria Studios in Miami April 1977, so a very similar time to Emotion. Albie Galuton says, I was really bummed that Save Me, Save Me wasn't a hit. Barry and I wrote that song. That was a great song. And I thought, too bad it wasn't a hit. It was an excellent song. Yeah, I agree with him. I think it was given to the wrong group. Well, who are Network? No, I don't know. I've, I've heard their version. And, and obviously for this podcast, I've gone through quite a few different versions. I've got to say that I think my favourite is by Dusty Springfield. Whereas my favourite is David Cassidy. That was recorded back in, I think, 79, but it was, wasn't released until in Japan in 1991. But it's a good version, isn't it? Now, going back to Dusty Springfield, just as a little side thing, I think she possessed one of the best vocalists for the 60s. And in the 80s, Barry does albums with Barbra Streisand. He then does Dionne Warwick, and then he does Dinah Ross. They'd all had hits, but probably not for quite a while. Probably Dinah Ross was the most recent, probably with My Piano, and when she did an album with Chic. I would have loved Barry to have done an album with Dusty Springfield. I don't think she'd had any hits throughout the 70s. Her career sort of stalled. She did a fantastic album called Dusty in Memphis, which wasn't a hit at the time, but then went on to be in most people's top 50 albums, greatest albums of all time. It would have been nice for him to have worked with her. And then recently I saw a video of her do this song. It was originally for a British TV programme that was cut. But I think she does a really good version of it. And it's just a shame that in hindsight, it, it, I, I personally would have liked him to have have worked with her.
Yeah, so it seemed to be a song that seen the Gib name on it. A lot of people realised it wasn't... It, I think it got to number 39 with Network. It wasn't a really big hit. It was given to Frankie Valli as his follow-up single to Grease. It was also covered by Terry Desario on her album as well. On that note, I, I would love to have heard a Barry's demo of this. I think that listing all of the songs that Barry and the Bee Gees were involved with in 77, I would put this as the weakest. But I think this one really would have been a great contender for Sunrise with Jimmy Ruffin. I think he could have done a tremendous version of this. Could Andy have covered it? It would have been good for Shadow Dancing. Yeah. It would have been really good for Shadow Dancing. Or as a one-off single for him, or, or even record it as a B-side. The tempo and rhythm of Save Me, Save Me, and also the verse, is very similar to Ain't Nothing Gonna Keep Me From You, which we'll cover next. So I think both songs have a lot of similarities to them. They're both proto-disco. So with that in mind, then shall we dive into that one? Yes, please. Keep Me From You is a Barry composition. It's copyrighted as December 1977, but this was recorded with Terry Desario around February of 1978 at Criteria Studios in Miami. Terry Desario released this as a single in July, and it appeared on her debut album Pleasure Train. And it got to the crazy heights of number 43. So undeserved. This should be right there at number one. I, I, I adore this song. Yeah, I agree with you. I remember reading things saying, people saying, you know, the Bee Gees wrote these songs hits in 77 they did a couple of others and they're very dismissive of of this one i've got a secret really liking for this one i love it i absolutely love it it's got that same thing to it as wings good night tonight yeah. it's a really really good disco flavor and it's not afraid to say that it's disco is it no the chorus sticks in your head straight away it's got an earworm of melody and I love the way that the verse and the chorus just flow into each other so seamlessly. This is one of my top choices of songs written by the Bee Gees that we don't have demos for that I'd love to hear a demo of. Because even Barry's quite prominent as well on the backing vocals. It's a song that slowed down. Could it have worked for Andy? And there's a group called Steps in the UK. And I could see them cover it. They did Tragedy. It was as well. <laughs> I, I, I could see them covering songs like this. So there's a lot of versions of this song, even just by Terry Desario. There are various extended versions. There's a 12-inch version that runs to just under seven minutes. And then there's one of my favourites, which is Disco Perfection. And it comes to just under 10 minutes. Wow. But I still think that's not long enough. If you were to describe it, this song, I would say it's a bit like Emotion on Speed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. The production on this... 
and the song itself is very much of its time. Very popular at the time, I would think, was things like roller discos. And this is the sort of song you, you get on there, yeah, or even, I'm not being for even at a fairground. So we mentioned regarding the five songs on Saturday Night Fever are all um, BRM compositions. And then we got Save Me, Save Me, which is a Barry and Albie composition. Emotion was Barry and Robin. This song is just solely Barry. Do you think it's coincidence that the songs that aren't BRM are the offcuts? Yeah. It's quite interesting then that, that we get Grease, which is just, again, just, just Barry. So I think, Chris, that takes us through all the 77 songs. There are a couple of obvious omissions that we've not covered. One being Our Love, Don't Throw It All Away, which I think if that's all right with you, Chris, we'll cover with Shadow Dancing and also Everlasting Love. We'll cover that one as well. But what a prolific year, isn't it? I think that with any other artist, to have just one of these songs that Barry wrote in 77, they would think that that would be the cream of the crop of their career. Yet Barry and the Bee Gees have written... A dozen of them and to them that's only one two years in a 40 year career and to have this set of songs i don't think there's any other artists have, have achieved the the heights in terms of sales in terms of song quality than these and longevity as well and longevity which is probably a main thing i mean in 200 years time these some of these songs are still going to be played on the radio if there is a radio <laughs> well this soundtrack the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack I think in 200 years time will still be regarded as one of the most important film soundtracks certainly in popular music that's ever been done John Lennon in one of his last 1980 interviews where he said that he wishes that in his career he would have had his own version of Saturday Night Fever that he clamoured to have that same yeah. level of success So with that in mind then, shall we, do we say this is a step down? I know, you just said about <laughs> 77 being one of the greatest highs, but one of the lowest lows. And we're talking about the film Sergeant Pepper, or I call it Sergeant Pepper Goes Down Abbey Road. Now, for our sins... In preparation for this podcast, Dad and I both individually attempted to watch Sergeant Pepper, the film. I got through the whole thing. I think you got about 45, 50 and then minutes. I, then I fast forward it and, and did a few of the songs. I think if anyone wants to hear more about the film and about its impact, its legacy and how it's regarded now and how it was regarded at the time, then Dad and I both highly recommend Sarah Stacey's Gibology episode on the subject. I listened to the whole thing in preparation to this and it was excellent. Yeah, really good. Um, there's a group of people that she chats to and they put different perspectives on the film. I think some of them are Beatles fans as well. So it's quite interesting and um, to hear them chat about this and what they think of the film 
We'll put the link onto that as well. Yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. So plans for the film were announced in November 1976. Now, I assume that this film came about because November 1976, they were looking forwards and thinking, right, next year, 1977, that marks 10 years since this landmark album came out. And so let's do a film to celebrate this. But it goes all the way back to the beginning. I remember when we were talking about Bee Gees first and the brothers kept saying, oh, we're doing these films. We're going to, was it The Little Drummer Boy? That's and it. And all films like that. And I think that they needed to get it out of their system at some point to get involved in one of these films and to, to be acting in it and to be singing in it. So this is the culmination of it. And it's an interesting watch. The closest thing that I could compare it to is the likes of Paul McCartney's Give My Regards to Broad Street. And I always think of that film as, as a stream of individual videos strung together by a weak storyline, which Barry did again for Now Voyager. But for Sergeant Pepper, it's a very strange thing. It's like someone's adapted a musical that should never have been made a musical. It's the worst types of American comedy that I don't like, with yeah. the likes of Steve Martin doing Maxwell's Silver Hammer. It's not my sort of comedy. It's very farce, canned sitcom kind of laughter. It's, it's just not my sort of thing at all. And the best thing about the film, watching it, was the fact that because it was shot on film, it looks fantastic in HD. And to see the Bee Gees in 78 in HD, and there's my favourite sequence of the film, is when we see them in the studio recording Oh Darling. Oh, that's fabulous, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm just thinking, wow, we could have a whole film of just the Bee Gees in the studio recording an album. And throughout this film, there's a lot of strange quirks. Morris plays the drums. I love him on drums. He's really, he so suits the drummer role. We see Robin with guitars and on keys. Barry Gibb is on the bass, which we hardly ever see. We actually get a lead Morris vocal. I know I always said, oh yeah, after... To whom it may concern, he doesn't get a lead vocal until Living Eyes, but he does have one here. Robin has a few lead vocals. And overarching the whole thing is the fact that George Martin's arranging it all. So there's a sense of safety there in that he's overseeing it. George Martin himself felt uncertainty towards being involved with the project. And he said, I knew in my heart of hearts that the Beatles would not have approved. And although I don't need their permission to run my life... I still wondered if it was right to go over old ground. On the other hand, Robert Stigwood assured me that if I took on the job, I would have complete artistic control over the music and would be able to dictate exactly what it should sound like. And for the Bee Gees themselves, working with George Martin was the highlight of the project. Morris said, The greatest thing about making Sgt Pepper was working with George Martin. To recreate the songs he did with the Beatles. Wow. And Morris practised for two months on the drums before recording the film, learning with Bernie Purdy, who was a drummer, who played drums across the movie soundtrack. The soundtrack itself was released in July 1978. And Barry says, There's a good story about the Sgt Pepper album. They shipped about two million copies of the album, and then found about a million of them by the side of the road. <laughs> well, I've got, funny if I've got that. <laughs> it's said to have, have shipped platinum and returned double platinum. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that just a complete opposite to Saturday Night Fever, where the production of the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack couldn't match the demand? Isn't it a miracle that having been a so-called flop, the pressure the Bee Gees must have been under to produce the next album? Because had the next album been Living Eyes, yeah. their career would have took a quicker dive, wouldn't it? 
There's no sign of disco or falsetto across Sergeant Pepper. No. At all. So it's kind of like an outlier. It's almost as though this was recorded, written, filmed before Saturday Night Fever, even though it wasn't. It feels more like something that should have come out in like 73 or 72. I think most of it was done in 77, wasn't it, the film? You know, later on, Nick Barry's interviewed and goes on to say that we used to share like dressing rooms. But by the end of the filming, we had our own dressing room because of all the money coming in right. from, from Saturday Night Fever. And I assume because they was working on this film, they was a bit cocooned. So they weren't quite aware of how big mm. Saturday Night Fever was coming. Yeah. I mean, had they probably have known that, they probably wouldn't even done this or, or just released an album of... Well, I don't really think they would have done an album of covers, would they? It would have been similar to 75 when they do those three or four Beatles songs. Oh, yeah, that all this in World War Two. It would have been yeah. something like that. They might have appeared on the soundtrack, kind of like Earth, Wind and Fire, showed up, done a cameo, and that's it. Done one song, and that's it. The film clearly should never have been made. No. The, the, the film should be buried in the archives. And Indeed it was again. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but that was the only good experience about doing that. It wasn't really a motion picture, whether you were, you were asked to act or... No, there was no acting We were just chasing Peter through the film and saving his life Peter and Frampton, so forth. Yeah. Peter Frampton. And we, in fact, it was very, very haphazardly put together. It wasn't a it, it, very well it, thought it out could have been. It could have been the end of the Bee Gees' image had it not been for Saturday Night Fever. So Saturday Night Fever had a, uh, a good, an upside and a downside. Yeah. You know? I must point out, too, that while we were filming Sgt. Pepper, we had no idea how big Fever was going to be and How Deep Is Your Love had just come out just in the middle of making that picture. So we, we didn't know what the effects were going to be, whether it would come out and damage it. Was, it all started, or... the album started doing a million a week during the filming of Sgt. Pepper, which changed the scenario on the Sgt. Pepper set somewhat. From us being the, uh, the three lackeys who were supposed to chase Peter around, everyone started to bow and scrape. <laughs> and um, the whole sensation was, was thrilling. There we were in this situation, doing a film which was obviously not going to work and we could feel it in our bones. We had many meetings with Robert about it. And at the same time, our careers were going through the roof on the other side and we couldn't witness it because we were locked in on this set. We, we didn't know what was going um, on outside. Except the lunch breaks were, uh, were always... Very uh, painful, were, lunch breaks. Well, we used to say in our caravans, but the lunch breaks were always chaotic. Um, the set would turn into a disco and our music would start pumping. We're staying alive, night fever. And then, you know, we, took, we, we could stay in our caravans and listen to the radio. There was more, <laughs> happen, more happening on the radio than, regarding us than there was on the set. Reflecting on the project, Robin Gibb says, It should have had more excitement poured into it. On the set, the camera is pointed at you, and you're thinking to yourself, it's got to be more than just me sitting here in this room, because nothing's happening. But then you see the film, and that's all there is. Nothing happening. No, nothing happening. <laughs> In the 29th of July 1978 issue of Record Mirror, Robin Smith says, The trouble is that the four sides of the Sgt. Pepper soundtrack are so lightweight and fun that the album hasn't enough substance. It's probably better as part of the film, but naked, on a turntable, it's disappointing. I went to a vinyl shop just after Christmas, and I saw it there, and I was tempted. Mmm, shall I get it? Shall I not? And I didn't. No. What are your memories of the Sgt. Pepper film at the time? None at all. You didn't realise no, it was being made? never been made. I didn't know anything about it at all. George Tremlett did a Bee Gees biography in 79. And I think, actually, it's got the cover. I think I'll dig it out, actually. It's got the cover of, of, of them in their Sgt. Pepper outfits. 
I'm probably talking early 80s when I would have brought it, but it never made me want to go and listen to it or find it or dig it out or anything. If I'm right, the single that the Bee Gees were involved with was Oh Darling, came out as a single, so that had no airplay at all. Not in the UK. Because that is a great version of Oh Darling. Oh yeah. So with that in mind then, shall we go into that song? Let's do it, yeah. Yeah, let's go for it. Oh, oh darling Please believe me I'll never do you no harm Believe me when I tell you I'll never do you no harm Well, as the live album says, here at last, we get a Robin vocal. <laughs> Very good, yeah. And actually, it did really well in, in America. It was his one and only top 20 chart position. He got to number 15. Yeah, so whereas the UK had Saved by the Bell and most of Europe, this was his biggest chart um, position in the, in the US. It's a really good rendition of the song. I think it's beautiful. I would say it's my favourite song of Side One of Abbey Road. Robin's version is completely different to McCartney's original. It's softer, it's subdued, but Robin still makes it his own. Exactly what I've put. Because I've got, compared to Paul McCartney's sort of raw, raucous, Robin's, it's sort of very lounge. Like you probably could say, I keep referring back to it, Sherrard. It's very loungy, laid back. And watching the clip as well really enhances the song. I would probably say this is highlight of the album. Easily. I like Earth, Wind and Fire, Got to Get You Into My Life. Yep. It's funny though, because then Paul McCartney does a tour in 79, and this is his lead-off single on the, on the concert, Got to Get You Into My Life. He must have been inspired by Earth, Wind and Fire's version yeah. of that song. Because it was, it was only an album track, wasn't it, on Revolver? Another plus on this is I love the orchestration by George Martin because for him it must have been very strange going into the studio and recording this. But it's quite nice that there's a different interpretation of the song. It's not just a mimic copy. So he's able to put his orchestra to this song, which I don't think he really does on the original. And I think it's nice to have on record that George Martin and the Bee Gees have collaborated. It's the missing link from from Bee Gees to Beatles is George Martin. But this is what I like about when people are going to do a cover version. Fine, but do something completely different. And I think where a lot of tracks fail, this one achieves it. So I thought it was all right with you, Chris. We'll, we'll jump around a little bit on this one. So we've had a full song with, with Robin. Shall we do one with Barry now? And that's A Day in the Life. I read the news today, oh boy. About a lucky man who made the grave And though the news was rather sad Well, I just had to laugh 
Well, I put this down as a nice cover. It's not a song that you would hear covered by many people, and I assume it fits the film quite well. It's great to see the the video part that goes with it in the film. <laughs> yeah. If if not a bit bizarre, I don't know if it's a day in the life or the way Barry is a day at the hairdressers. It's quite bouffanty hair on this one. But yeah, it's quite a bizarre video that it goes from in the studio, in the car, then he's smoking a joint, I think. And then Peter Frampton going to commit suicide and, and it's all shown with that weather thing at the top. Billy Preston comes along, saves the day. It's all a bit bizarre, but I'm not so keen on his vocal interpretation of the part where it goes, wake up, get out of bed. It's quite prickly to me. It's quite... Yeah. He speaks it as opposed to properly singing it. And I think, for me personally, like the Beatles had Paul McCartney do that part from John Lennon's verses, I think it would have been nice to put Robin in there. Yep. Got up, get out of bed. I agree. Woke up, fell out of bed, drank the comb across my head. Found my way downstairs and drank a cup. Looking up, I noticed I was late Found my coat, I grabbed my hat Made the bus in seconds flat He restrains his vocals to his natural voice on this. It's just, it's just the middle part I'm not so keen on. And because it's such sort of an iconic song, I don't know whether you could stray too much from the original. There wasn't much play in it, was there? Not like Oh Darling. With George Martin at the helm... It's in safe hands, so in terms of production, I've got no problems with it. Well, that then, shall we go on to being for the benefit? Because I think this does have Morris' vocal. I think he's on the first verse. For the benefit of Mr Kite, there will be a show tonight on trampoline. The Henderson will all be there Later Pablo Frankie's there What a scene Of a men and horses, hoops and garters Lastly through a hothead of real fire In this way Mr K will challenge the world One of the best things about Sergeant Pepper, the film, watching it Is Morris as the comedic actor Because he plays it very well It reminds me in the same way that Ringo Starr would play something very straight and so for him to be in the role of the drummer and then to take on the lead for being for the benefit, which is a circus tune, it's it's all very appropriate. Talking to Morris as well, I'm surprising that he didn't put on his John Lennon vocal. You can do it well. He's so good at it. Yeah. I'm thinking, well, this is a good opportunity for you to sort of mimic it and just sort of go for it. But yeah. whether they want didn't want the, the comparison, and I, I don't know. There's also a link as well, because obviously Peter Frampton appears on this. Morris also worked with Peter Frampton when he did the um, LP with Jimmy Stevens back in 72. Well, you can see that they're all having fun on set. There's good chemistry between all of them. The band begins at 10 to 6 when Mr K performs his tricks without a sound. Well, can we get the worst one out of the way? 
Go on then, she's leaving home. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Now those robots in the film are, are probably the worst thing about it. I, I don't know what they are, but it's, it's culturally inappropriate blackface robots. And it's done with a with a vocoder, do you think? Yeah, and it's just grating and horrible. I've got She's Leaving Home. I love Robin's part. Yep. And for me, this is like, if Robin had sang all this, this would be like transporting me back to Sing Slowly Sisters, the sort of Baroque. Because he's taking one of the best songs from Sergeant Pepper that's Baroque and he can make it like an outtake. Leave him, let him, let him get on with it. Him, it. Let him and George Martin go and do their stuff on it and yeah. let's hear what he's, he could have sounded like, the full orchestra properly reduced from 1970, jump forward to 77. Yeah, I'd not made the comparison, but it, it could have been like a Sing Slowly song. Oh, absolutely. Father snores as his wife gets into her dressing gown Picks up the letter that's lying there Standing alone at the top of the stairs breaks down and cries to her husband Daddy, our baby's gone He was an expert at that during them sessions, wasn't he? Yeah. And as we discussed on the podcast, you know, there's some, there was some amazing stuff then done then and he was quite capable of, would you say, churning out that sort of thing and this is the ideal song and, and as you say, it's such a beautiful song and it's wasted. Yeah. Why would anybody... On vinyl, listen to robots singing. She's so this is one of the one of the songs that I think is the reason why the, the soundtrack was not the hit that they was after. As I say, it's such a wasted opportunity. I agree with you. This this is the the dire track of the. Of the main ones that I'm picking anyway. Yep. So where are we next in Pepperland? Well, we're in Pepperland. I'm going to jump to Nowhere Man. He's a real nowhere man Sitting in his nowhere land Making all his nowhere plans For nobody Doesn't have a I really like this rendition. Nowhere Man is one of, if not my favourite, John Lennon Beatles song. And I really like the Bee Gees rendition here. Barry's gone into his sort of early 70s style vocal on this. It's great. And then with the harmonies, you've got Robin higher in the mix. You've got the film clip with Robin on guitar alongside Peter Frampton and then Morris on the drums. Interestingly, this was released in a longer version, as a B-side to The Day in the Life in Italy. So I don't think it's a different take. They've just done their version of copy and paste from one part of the song, just to extend it. Making all is 
In the film, Nowhere Man appears a part of the medley with Polythene Pam, She Came In Through The Bathroom Window, Nowhere Man, and then Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, The Reprise. Okay. I think it, this one's quite a faithful rendition of Polythene Pam, quite a rocking voice. Could have been Morris, again, who takes it on with the John Lennon vocal. But as it is, it's Barry. I think it's one of those fairly faithful renditions. It sounds to me like he didn't spend too much time in the studio. Go in the booth, one take, out again. In the Ultimate Biography, there's some passages from George Martin where he says that he actually was getting a little bit frustrated with Barry because Barry's such a perfectionist that when Barry does double tracking, certainly during this time, he was doing double tracking, he wanted to get it so spot on, whereas George Martin would rather him have the double tracking be a bit looser and it doesn't have to be so perfect because he says that the imperfections is what makes it so magical, whereas Barry, in his own way, was trying to get it spot on. So I think he was trying to detract Barry from getting it so spot on. Because John Lennon, he he wouldn't let his voice be heard unless it was double tracked. With reverb, etc., yeah. He always said he hated his his voice, natural voice on its own. That was that to be double tracked. Now, this caught me by surprise because, as you mentioned earlier, I started watching about the first 40 odd minutes over. So we get the thing leading to Sergeant Pepper and they're on a stage sort of in the middle and people all around him. So then we get, quite surprisingly, Robin singing this, which I assumed it would have been Barry, but it's Robin singing this. And for the first so many seconds, we get the back view of his head as probably the camera's rotating round. And I think, oh, right, okay. So it would have been nice to have full-on view of the band, the way it was set up, playing this. Because the Bee Gees aren't the focal point of the film, so the camera doesn't need to always be pointed directly at them, but I I see what you mean. But they do the the reprise part of this. On the soundtrack, that's the only time we get to hear Barry's falsetto.
So I think that about covers it, Chris. The remaining of the songs are mainly just other singers or actors doing the songs with the Bee Gees covering backing vocals. These, to me, are probably the best six or seven. Personally, apart from Oh Darling and A Day in the Life, I don't think much else needs repeated listening. So on that note then, shall we wave goodbye to Sergeant Pepper? Yes, farewell. Shall we drive in with a bit of grease? Barry's supposed to have composed this in 30 minutes. In the ultimate biography, Barry recalls the story of the song's origins. He says, Robert Stigwood rang up and said, Can there be a song called Grease? I said, What do you want? He said, I want a hit record that's called Grease. I says, How can anybody write a big hit record called Grease? I mean, do you write about combing your hair? Do you write about brill cream? Or what? <laughs> How do you make that romantic? That's true. It clicked later on. If you write a song about the word Greece, it would work. And that's all I did. And he makes it sound so easy. I was on my own at the time that I got the idea. And uh, Robert played it to Alan Carr, and Alan Carr didn't particularly think it was right. Uh, But it happened at the time that they didn't have a song called Greece in the film Greece. And all I did was fill a void at that point. John Farrer had done most of the songs for Greece, and in fact deserves the credit for all the songs in Greece. They needed something to start off the film, and John Farrow hadn't given them that. And um, it was uh, simply uh, a one-off situation. I think this is a contender for the greatest song the Bee Gees gave away. The opening bit is fantastic, isn't it? That is is really... So iconic. Yeah. I think this is a really good feel-good song. And obviously, seven million people must agree with me. It sold over, over seven million. Have you watched the film Grease? A long time ago. Mm, yeah, I probably watched it the same as you a long time ago. And I think unlike the majority of the songs, it doesn't sound very 50s. But then again, whether it was a musical and they turned it into a film, but they added new songs. I think the ones were Sandy, Hopelessly Devoted to You, You're the One That I Want, Summer Loving. So they don't particularly sound very 50s. People queued for this film. And to come sort of straight after Saturday Night Fever, especially for John Travolta. Unlike Sergeant Pepper, this is one that you do remember. Oh, yeah, it, it, it was really big, this film. I mean, I, friends of mine said that people dancing in the aisles and cinema said it was it was really good. But I never went, to, it didn't really appeal to me, so I didn't go, I never went to the cinema. I think my brother, I think I bought my brother the soundtrack for his birthday. Don't know whether they ever played it, but <laughs> it was on a cassette and he did say he wanted it at the time. But yeah, I mean, I, I like um, the Living Newton John songs on here really good. And it's quite apt that she's in the film as well with the connections with, with the brothers. Take the pressure and we throw away conventionality belongs to you. 
yesterday. There is a chance that we can make it so far. We start believing now that we can be who we are. Reese is the word, this the word, is the word that you heard. It's kind of groove, it's kind of meaning. It was a recent discovery, I think, for the, the demo to unsurface. I think it was brought out for the 40th anniversary of the film. Barry said that they could release the demo, though I don't think he was particularly happy about it. I don't know why, because I love the demo. It's a very rare combination that we hardly ever hear of just Barry and a piano. I can't think of any other example where we just hear those two things, but we should hear it more often because it's fantastic. Having just the piano shows how much of a complex arrangement this actually is. It's a really jaunty rhythm with the offbeat chords, the staccato stabs. As you said, it's a fun song. It really is. It brings out the fun. And, and I like Frankie Valli's version, but I wish Barry had kept it for himself. I wonder, I've often thought about this. I've thought, I wonder why Barry didn't sing this. Do you think he's worried of overkill? That's what I thought. I was about to say, I thought he might be worried that he's oversaturating the market with his own voice. Because it's set in the 50s, really, Frankie Valli was no spring chicken. So, so who... Frankie Valli, Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. I mean, there's a big show, I think, that's been going for quite a few years about the Four Seasons in the West End. So their hits were like Sherry. And then they, they had a bit of a resurgence, the Four Seasons, in about 75, 76... They got into the UK charts with a song called Who Loves You. So whether Barry had heard him singing that and he was, right, let's bring him in for this. And I really like the version from One Night Only in 97. Yeah, because don't, on that one, don't they amalgamate Frankie's Valleys in with theirs as well? Yeah, with excerpts from the film... But if I remember rightly, isn't the crowd reaction great when this starts? Yeah, because Newton John's in the crowd yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Great version, this one. So have you looked too much into the lyrics of this one? I saw my problems and I'll see the light. We got a loving thing. We got to feed it right. There ain't no danger. We can go too far. We start believing now that we can be who we are. Grease is the word. They think our love is just a growing pain. Why don't they understand? It's just a cry in shame. Their lips are lying. Only real is real. We stop the fighting now. We got to be what we feel. Grease is the word. Doesn't refer to anything from the 50s, though, does it? It's, it's, would you say, it's not letting itself be directed by the era? As Barry said, it's writing about the word Greece, yeah. the, the, the feeling. It's also the Bee Gees entering the territory of musical. And so to get this musical number... Works really well. Yeah. And I think it's used, if I remember rightly, it's used to the opening credits of the film when it starts. So already you've got that... I would imagine listening now in 5-1 in the cinema, it would sound phenomenal. Sometimes it's lying on a beach or down an alley out of reach. Just trash, I love it. What other people throw away, I try to save for a rainy day. Just trash, I love it. You see, I wasn't born. Set the sun and moon and sun 
So to finish this podcast off, we've got a little oddity here. We're going back to Robin again, and it's where he recorded a song called Trash. And it was recorded in May 1978, released in August 78, and got to the dizzy heights of 75. (laughs) Yeah, and it's from an album called Sesame Street Fever. It wasn't composed by Robin. It was composed by a writer for the, like the Muppets or Sesame Street and it's somebody called Joe Raposo. Robin become involved with it because his children were big fans of the show and I've read where his wife Molly and the children joined him in New York to visit the set of Sesame Street. So with that, Chris, I think that that covers now everything. And this is going to be a first for our podcast because this is the first year 77 where I've got no songs that were written and unreleased. Everything that was written was put out. Like we did with the all the solo stuff from the 70s, I thought it'd be quite interesting just to compile or collate what we think we could make for a 77 album. And I am going to be a bit naughty and I am going to include couple of songs from Andy's and I thought if you want to you can include tracks that you know that were floating around that didn't get used so I've done a 12 track album and I've called it Night Fever so I've gone with number one is Staying Alive number two If I Can't Have You three How Deep Is Your Love four More Than A Woman five Warm Ride and to end side one I've gone with Our Love Don't Throw It All Away so side two, I've started off with Night Fever. I've then gone to Emotion. Then I Just Want to Be Your Everything. Ain't Nothing Gonna Stop Me Four. Save Me, Save Me Five. And Love Is Thick in the Water to close it. Very good. Yeah, strong album. It's weird to think that if that album existed, would it be as revered without the movie associated with it? It would to me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I did it. Yeah, I know you, I know where you're coming from, yeah. Yes, well, I suppose probably not because you haven't. You need you need the movie that backs the songs up. Yeah, but definitely a good follow up to Children of the World. And if you were to have done a couple of singles leading up to it, I would have gone really. How deep is your love? Staying alive, night fever, and oh, I don't know. It's quite there's loads you could put as singles, couldn't you? I mean, yeah. and I just absolutely love. I love. Don't throw it all away as well. It's a conversation for a later episode, but I do think about. If this album had have come out and the Bee Gees had have used Our Love Don't Throw It All Away and Warm Ride, etc., what would Andy have done for his next albums? Oh, that's true. Well, I would personally think he would have stayed in Australia of the year, see how this album did, and then Barry would have come in with something else. Yeah. Composed a song that never existed, if you know what I mean. So what have you got for yours? I've compiled an 11-track list, starting with Side A, Like Yourself, Staying Alive, then Emotion, Night Fever, If I Can't Have You, Closing Side 1 with Rest Your Love On Me. Flip to Side 2, we start with a pulsing beat of Ain't Nothing Gonna Keep Me From You, and then Warm Ride, 
Our love don't throw it all away. More than a woman. And then penultimate, your love will save the world. And close with how deep is your love. So with regards to staying alive then, would you put the bridge song in or the one without it? Hmm, Good question. Bridge song for the album, the one without for the single. So they get a fuller version on the album? Yeah. Or I could be really cheeky and say that extra bit could be its own song on the album. As an outro? Yeah, yeah, possibly. I do want to see that longer version in its entirety. Yeah. They're good, aren't they? Just a little fun thing, isn't it? I think I might go and compile that now from my car. Going on to some listener thoughts, Hubert DeMaze says, I've always wondered how the Saturday Night Fever songs would have been with no movie. Most likely, not as much success. At the same time, I wonder how the Sgt Pepper songs would have done without that terrible movie. (laughs) Most likely, more successful. And then Beth Holmes says, Can you imagine how their success and subsequent backlash scenario might have gone differently if they hadn't been connected to Saturday Night Fever. It isn't an especially terrific movie, plot-wise, though maybe John Travolta's dancing and popularity would have been enough to create a wave of enthusiasm without the Bee Gees' contribution. Would the songs have been played on the radio five times in every hour in any case? Would people have gotten quite as tired of the Bee Gees without the connection to the movie? I like to imagine them being successful without the backlash. As a young teen, I loved it that their stuff was on the radio as much as it was. And then she goes on to say, I love Sgt Pepper. I like it all today even more than I did when it came out, because now I enjoy a larger number of the non-Bee Gees performances as well. And then she goes on to conclude that maybe the Bee Gees music would not have been noticed had it not been for Saturday Night Fever. But I wonder if their music on its own would have exploded in a good way or if the movie-music combo ended up being bad alchemy or good alchemy for the Bee Gees. So before we end the podcast, I thought it'd be quite interesting to have a look at the top-selling singles for 78. But rather than do the UK, US, Europe, I thought, as we mentioned, Australia really selling well with Mr Natural, that we'd have a look at their charts for 78. And if you get the top 20... The 19th best-selling single was Warm Ride by Graham Bonnet. Grease was number 18. 17 was How Deep Is Your Love, Bee Gees. You've got Emotion at number 13. And then you've got Staying Alive at number 4. The one omission on there I see is, is Night Fever. And on the subjects of charts, in the US, on the weeks of the 25th of February to the 4th of March... Five singles written and produced by at least one of the brothers were simultaneously in the Hot 100's top 10. And because of this, there was a sign flashed up every eight minutes, reading, RSO congratulates the Bee Gees for the first time since the Beatles' five hits in the top 10. The Bee Gees have the number one single and number one album in Billboard, Cashboard and Record World. Congratulations, RSO. And with all of that, we come to the end of our episode on the Bee Gees soundtrack works of 1977-78. It's quite a relief getting to the end of this episode, because in a similar way to when we were prepping for the Australian Years episodes, 
it felt like a very daunting task to collate all of their Australian material. And it was very much the same. I had the same feeling going into this 77, 78 soundtracks work episode. Yeah. Because the songs are so revered, certainly from Saturday Night Fever. Everyone knows them. And how can we do them justice? Yeah, because I know, I remember getting my um, notebook out and write, you write down, right, how deep is your love? Where do I start with this one? And I was playing them in the car. And then gradually you, you, you think, right, well, I, could, I like this part. I'll, I'll, I, can, I can mention this. But I suppose it's, you, you say about the Australian ones, but it, it, it's the opposite then. There they wrote hundreds of songs where very little was known. Here we've got a, f- a lot fewer songs, but nearly every song of those is known. Very well put. The Australian material was a mammoth task because of just how many songs there were. But with this one, it's the quality of them yeah. and how well known they are. That's It felt like such a task to sit down and give our thoughts on Staying Alive and How Deep Is Your Love. What can we make of these five or six songs? What can we do? I mean, so that's why then we decided to put all these together. I mean, luckily, they did Sergeant Pepper just so we could do our podcast and uh, <laughs> add a bit of bad to the good. <laughs> yeah. Add a bit of salt to the pepper. That's it. That's it. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> For the next episode, we're very excited to be joined by an incredibly special guest. Like Joseph Brennan and Tim Roxburgh, this is someone who we've been mentioning a lot in near enough every single episode, referred to his books, to his documentation, referred to his reissues, as we'll be talking to Andrew Sanderville. Yes, and it's um, I'm really looking forward to that because, I mean, I've had the day-to-day book since 2012. And we'll be talking to Andrew about his work writing that book, his work with the Bee Gees reissues and those that never got released, and also his involvement with the Monkees music and 60s music and his radio show Come to the Sunshine. So yeah, we're very excited to share that episode next month. Just dream.